Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. In this episode, we're talking about walls, which uh, sounds a little big. Mm-hmm. And it is a big topic because we live in this world of walls. All around us, we have walls that we've erected, walls that are physical, walls that are made of stone, that are made of wood, walls that are legal walls, walls that are mental, walls that are composed just of ideas, ideas of legacy, ideas of division. Hidden walls, walls walls naked to the eye, firewalls, censorship. With any situation with a wall, you have an outsider and you have an insider. Mm -hmm. Generally, when we're contemplating walls, we're on one side or the other. I guess it's possible to stand on the top of the wall, but that's a... That's a different situation. It's a precarious position to be in. Yeah. Right? You don't want to straddle the wall. But this is one of the the oldest ideas, really, in human civilization. We've been building physical walls to protect cities and towns for ages. Walled cities are one of the earliest symbols of Mm -hmm. civilization. How do you protect a settlement against marauders who are using their horses to try and steal your agricultural excess? Mm -hmm. And, in fact, the Chinese word for city and walls is the same, Qing which I found was interesting because that's how that's how important walls were in the in the emergence of cities in Chinese history. Yeah, and if you guys haven't already figured it out, we are seriously talking about walls today, like yep. the actual physical structures. One of the things that I was thinking about is that walls are these concrete abstractions of what I think of as maps, right? This mm-hmm. this way to delineate territory to try to say my power base is going to be here. And it's kind of like, it's a very interesting way that we took this abstract notion of ownership and then said, ah, we'll show you. We'll put up a wall to prove our point. It's like when you're in your back seat with your sister on a long car ride as a kid. (laughs) You each have a side of the back seat that you're supposed to stay on and your stuff is supposed to stay on those sides. But during border disputes, it becomes necessary then to point out exactly where the line is. It may become Mm -hmm. necessary to put some tape down that line to mark it in the physical world. Right. And maybe even construct a barrier out of luggage or pillows. Yeah, and from time to time, though, one might want to show their might by crossing that border and Mm -hmm. uh, knocking down luggage and making a political statement, really, about how they feel about you humming for three hours in the car. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, you end up with everything that has a symbolic power in human culture. Walls take on multiple purposes. And I found this particularly telling. In ancient Chinese tradition, you have these city gods, oh, yeah. these Cheng Hung, who um, protect the moats and walls of towns. So they're important because they're helping protect your very livelihood, your very life, mm-hmm. and, uh, and everything you hold dear is protected by these walls and moats and therefore by the deity that attends to them. But the Chang Hung also makes sure that the King of the Dead doesn't take any souls away without his permission. Mm-hmm. And so not only is he a lord of walls and moats, he's also a lord of death. And I, I find that's an interesting, just symbolic uh, dichotomy there. What I like about this is that this uh, city god, or these lords of walls and moats, that's another name for them, mm-hmm. uh, there's a bit of bureaucracy involved with this, and that they're usually considered to be the reincarnation of a human being who had been an official in earlier times. And the city god was thought to change every three years, <laughs> just like a living nice. magistrate would change office every three years. And both the magistrate and the gods hold sway over the same administrative area. So, as you say, you know, there's some supernatural areas there. 
but there's this expectation that there's formal reverence paid to the city god. So in that you see both Chinese efficiency, but also this very important notion of venerating your ancestors in Chinese right, culture right. combined in this idea. That, that someone was dispatching their souls to the underworld realm. Speaking of China, this brings us, of course, to the Great Wall of China, which is, when you, when you talk about walls, there are various examples that come to mind. There's mm-hmm. the Wailing Wall, there's the Berlin Wall, there's Hadrian's Wall. There are plenty of examples, but the big one, the main wonders of the world, yeah. is the Great Wall of China. And the history of the wall is really fascinating because it's easy to just sort of, all right, you've seen a picture of it, you know what it looks like, you know it's a uh, something to see if you're a, a tourist in China. Mm-hmm. But what is it? What is its history? How is it conceived? And it, the wall dates back more than 2,000 years to uh, a, a time of unification mm-hmm. in China. Mm-hmm. And this is when you had the Qin Dynasty uniting seven warring kingdoms, that's including itself. And as they do that, they have all these separate walls that were built by independent kingdoms. And so the Qin Dynasty begins to link them together. Mm-hmm. And the idea is to protect against marauders. So they conscript hundreds and thousands of workers. We're talking groups of prisoners, political enemies, peasants, soldiers, and they work for 10 years on this project. Yeah. Thousands upon thousands die, as this tends to happen. And legend has it that the bones of individuals who died constructing the wall are then, then become a part of the wall, making it, in some people's words, the longest cemetery on earth. Yeah, and much of this is because this is happening during the Qian Dynasty, right? And Mm -hmm. this is, again, you talked about the neighboring territories that were finally united, these little fiefdoms that had a lot of strife. But it was united under what I guess you could say was China's first emperor because... China wasn't China until this this guy united them. And when I say guy, I mean 13-year-old. And this 13-year-old is Qin Chu Di. He is, I guess you could say, a, a bit of a megalomaniac. He begins to actually think about this unification and becomes obsessed with this idea that demons and these barbarians are going to take over China. And so that's where he mandates the this length of the wall to be constructed. And again, there are bits of construction of these walls throughout these thousands of years, but this is the guy who decides that it's really important to have, from the Gobi Desert to the Yellow Sea, this fortress. Yes. It's fascinating, the idea that the wall is protecting, not only against actual barbarians, but also against demons, so that it's not just a... A military barrier. It's a it's a spiritual barrier as well. Right. Again, keep in mind with all of this. This is two thousand years ago. So this is a time when spiritualism, megalomania, and abuse of the peasantry were pretty much in vogue everywhere. So uh, so this is you know not unique to China by any uh, stretch of the imagination. But the idea that that you're you're protecting against not only things but against ideas, mm-hmm. I think, is very telling because we see the the symbolic power of the wall rather overtly. As we'll see in various examples of walls we look at here, too, when, when humans build walls, they're almost always thinking of that symbolic power as well, mm-hmm. not only to the outsider. And to the outsider, the wall is a clear statement of, hey, you are not welcome here. You stay on your side of the back seat, yeah. and I'll stay on mine. Yeah. And then to the insider, the wall says, I have built you a wall. You are protected. You are safe. You know, it is, it is saying there is a physical barrier between you and the things that you are afraid of. And you can thank me for it. Well, I mean, yeah, it's very much like the boogeyman, right? Right. And to this point, this emperor decided that he wanted this circuitous wall built and not a straight path. And the reason is because a straight line in demonology is great for demons because they're able to navigate only on straight lines and not on curves. 
So he's going to make it even more difficult for these demons by making this this serpentine wall that's 24 feet high. And certainly that's one of the things that's amazing about examples of the wall today. And, and again, examples of the wall today, uh, as we'll discuss, these are the, the wall has been added to and renovated numerous times mm-hmm. throughout history. So we're not necessarily talking about the same physical wall and the same bricks, mm-hmm. but you still see that shape. It's like a serpent lying across the hills. Yeah, and it is fascinating because it's one of those things that people had long assumed was one big, coherent, linked-up wall, but in fact it's not. That was one of the myths. Another myth is that you could see this from the moon. Yeah, yeah, or see it from space, and it's it's just not so. No, it's not it's so. It's a lovely story, but it it's is lovely. not true. But to go back to this emperor and talk a little bit about Chinchu Wangdi and how he treated peasants, you refer to this as the world's longest cemetery. At least some people have talked about this, Mm -hmm. the Great Wall of China being this. Again, he sort of indulged in soothsaying and a little bit of paranoia. And it is said that his soothsayer told him that the wall would actually never be built, which he was mortally frightened of, right, because the barbarians were going to come get him and and the demons, unless 10,000 men were entombed in the wall. Wow, what, what a soothsayer. Can you imagine being that guy being on the, the payroll? That takes a lot of cojones, really, to yeah. be like, you know, this is the message. 10,000, you gotta, you got to execute them, uh, throw them in there. So Chinchu Wangdi decides, you know what, he's the ruler. He realizes that he full well can't just spare that many men. Mm-hmm. So he finds a loophole in the form of one guy who has the word or the character for 10,000 in his name. Oh. Guess what his fate is. He is killed and buried in the wall. Yeah, he's tossed into the wall. But again, there's this idea that this wall begins to take on meaning of forced labor, Mm -hmm. being subjugated. As you can start to see, peasants are not really digging this wall. Right. The symbolic power to the insider is not just an idea of protection, but an idea of this is the kind of thing that governments and rulers create out of your blood. Right. It becomes a symbol of oppression and actually is very much a symbol of that for a long time until we get to the 20th century. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But let's talk about this as being an imperfect barrier. That's the thing. Obviously, the wall is important, like we said, as an idea of protection. But does it actually offer protection? On one level, you're building these walls often at the on the extremes. They're on the frontier. They're between civilization and the barbarians and the demons. Mm-hmm. So you're having to basically establish colonies there. I mean, think of it in almost in terms of like an off-world colony kind of a situation. You're having to have soldiers there that are also growing their own food, and they are more a part of the frontier than they are of the homeland. So they actually end up having some sort of rapport with the local populations, with mm-hmm. the barbarians, mm-hmm. and as such are susceptible to bribes, uh, just, you know, Here's, here are a few bucks. Look the other way while we march an army through. And, or join our army. Or join our army, even. That happens as well. Mm-hmm. So it, it becomes very difficult just to to man and protect it. And then you're going to have gaps as well. Yeah. For instance, just in terms of the wall itself, the wall is not, you, you might think of the wall as being this nonstop wall that actually snakes across the entire country. But there are gaps in it, and there are places where just natural barriers are depended on to uh, to serve as the wall. Well, and it hasn't been maintained, so there are, there are right. um, parts of it that are in ruins. So you have Genghis Khan, or, or Genghis Khan, as he's sometimes referred to. GK. 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 The big GK. Uh, he brings with him a huge army and martial arts and a, a, a flair for psychological terror. Yes. And he breaches the wall, right? And for a good hundred years, the rule of China comes under Mongol. 
Yeah, they were the ones in charge when Marco Polo visited. That's right, that's right. And so Mongols are really taking over. But then in 1368, a Chinese peasant leads a rebellion against Mongol rule, and this helps to establish the Ming Dynasty. I only mention this because the Ming Dynasty is really important in actually giving a lot of shoring up to the wall. Yeah, this was 1368, and uh, the Ming Dynasty looks at the wall and says, you know, this is something we need to fix up. We need to get it going because we don't want to be conquered by the barbarians again. Right. And with it, they actually are responsible for architectural embellishments on it and beginning to document various points in history. So you really begin to see more of a coherent picture of the wall with the Ming Dynasty. But then here's another thing that happens. Under Manchu rule, the wall no longer matters since the land on both sides is ruled by Manchu when China is invaded yet again. Yeah, this is the 1700s. The Manchu invade, the Ming Dynasty, they made a number of changes to it. They added to its length, to its width, double and triple walls in some places to really reinforce it. But then when the Manchus invade in 1700s, it's largely abandoned as a military priority. Yeah. It kind of stays that way for a while, pretty much until very recent times. During that time, the wall crumbles. Mm -hmm. The wall is looted for building supplies because Mm -hmm. you have all of these stones right there ready to use. And so people carry it off to build things that are of actual value to their lives. Right. Because the wall's just sitting there. It's not even a military factor anymore. And then when Mao Zedong comes to power, he encourages Chinese people to use this, to use the bricks, to use parts of the wall to build things. And Mao brings in also this idea of the modern, you know, uh, part of the There's whole, a cultural revolution. Yeah, going cultural on, revolution. Right? And a huge part of it is we're going to focus on the modern China and the future China. Yeah, we're going to obliterate the past. Right. The wall is very much a piece of the past and mm-hmm. a piece of the past that has still leaves a bad taste in a lot of people's lives because it is this thing built out of their blood. It is this symbol of a domineering, violent rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not one of the wonders of the world that we now think of it. But this, it begins to, to recast itself in modern times, right? Around 1984, there's this idea that the wall begins to take on national pride. And they actually say, let us love our country and restore our great wall. This becomes a big mission for them. Yeah, you have important foreign heads of state visit, Reagan visits, Gorbachev visits, where they go. They go to the Great Wall. Nixon visits, you know. And they, right, right, I was going to say, Nixon, who, wasn't he the person who said something like, only a great people could build this great wall, which starts to even then recast its image. Yeah, luckily he was a wall enthusiast. He was all about putting Not up walls. Not Pink Floyd, but <laughs> just, yeah. Just walls yeah. in general. Yeah. So yes, he added to that vibe that this was something that was important and worth celebrating. And so over the past few decades, uh, you see this increasing restoration of portions of the wall increased commercialization of portions of the wall. I'm mm-hmm. reading in the uh, Lonely Planet uh, China Guide. They point out that there are sections of the wall that are just insanely uh, populated, really. I mean, you just oh, have, yeah. have tourists there almost all the time unless you go in the dead of winter. Mm-hmm. There are gift shops, there are tourists, there are people selling things. and I mean, that's just the way it goes with, with popular locations. But there are still plenty of portions of the wall that are not super renovated, that are still beautiful, and don't have like a restaurant in them. Not that there are portions of the wall that have restaurants in them, but you know what I'm saying. Don't have a Denny's in them? Yeah. There are places in China where you can go, if you you look into it and you you do the research, where you can get more of a serene view of the wall as as opposed to a hyper-commercialized version. But but still, uh, even if you go to those areas where there are a lot of people and there's a a lot of commercialization, it's still a stunning sight. Indeed. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to move beyond the Great Wall of China and discuss some more modern examples of walls in our lives. Including cosmic walls. Whoa. All right, we're back. So, when you 
think beyond the Great Wall of China and you think of modern walls, what comes to mind? Okay, well, I mean, you know, I think about Berlin Wall. I also think about the Atlantic Wall mm-hmm. that Hitler was, I think it was like 800 miles of seacoast, oh, uh, yes. at least in France, that he had been constructing as a barrier of wind and a bit of military might. Yeah, the stuff from Saving Private Ryan, if uh, everyone remembers that flick. Yeah, but of course here in the U.S., one of the most strikingly obvious walls is more like a fence. It yes. the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, we call it a fence, but it sure as heck looks like a wall yeah. um, in many uh, areas. And, uh, and it's been in the news a lot, especially with the conservative primaries leading up to this year's presidential election. Mm-hmm. You've had a lot of people touch on this as a hot, it's a hot topic issue, immigration in the United States. A lot of our listeners are U.S. based, but a lot of you are based in other countries. U.S. Mexican migrations are very much on voters' minds, especially conservative voters. So you have people like Herman Cain, the pizza mogul, who came out and said, we are going to build an electric fence. Made out of pizza. <laughs> Not made out of pizza. He did not rule out alligators, as I remember. So, moats and walls. And then there were some other half-cocked ideas that were thrown around by some other candidates. But it all comes down to this idea of the wall, right? Sending this message to Mexico, saying Mexicans are not wanted here, and sending, more importantly, really, because these are politicians talking about wall building, mm-hmm. sending this message to their constituents in the U.S. to say, we care about what you care about so much that we built this thing. We're going to erect this giant symbol of right. what we're talking about. Even though there are YouTube videos of people scaling up these things up and over them in seconds, and, right. and it's the same situations come into play that came into play with the Great Wall of China. There are going to be gaps. There are going to be places where care of the border is either less maintained or, or is not maintained at all. Well, here's the thing. Last year was the biggest sustained drop in immigration mm-hmm. from Mexico to the United States, believed to be surpassed in scale only by losses in the Mexican-born U.S. population during the Great Depression. So we're actually seeing a drop in immigration to the United States from Mexico. Mm-hmm. And much of this is because, well, first of all, the Mexican cartel yes. are, are acting as border agents on the Mexican border. And they're demanding money, and sometimes they actually use immigrants as drug mules. So it's become far more dangerous, as if it weren't already, to try to cross. But also, um, on the U.S. side, it's become much more difficult and rigorous in terms of trying to prosecute people for for doing this. Of course, there's been an economic downturn as well. And also, you can factor in changes in legislation in some of the southern states that have cracked down on the use of migrant labor. Right. Yeah. So it is one of those things that we wanted to point out because it is a huge symbolic effort by the United States. But uh, in terms of efficacy and really getting at the what they think or what the United States politicians think is the root problem doesn't isn't really solved by this fence. Right. And and though some people may have giggled at the idea of building a wall to keep demons at bay, like I say, that is just an overt statement of what all walls ultimately symbolize. Like even this wall is about keeping demons of the mind at bay. Mm-hmm. To some people on the inside, it is a demonization of the threats that, and a simplification of the threats that uh, that lie outside and are waiting to get in. It's also worth noting, though, that uh, when you build walls or fences of, of this nature, you're building them in environments that did not previously have barriers. Uh, so you're you're right. going to cut into not only the migration of people, but the migration of animals. Mm-hmm. So there have been a number of studies that have looked into what effects border fences on the U.S.-Mexican border have had on migrating animals. And it doesn't paint a pretty picture. No, no, I mean, you're altering the psychic and the geographical landscape, right? Yeah. 
And it's interesting that you mentioned the psychic because that was one of the things that has also been brought up about the, the Great Wall of China and throughout China's history, that uh, there were people who thought of it as a disruptor of qi, you know, this disrupt, disrupting the earth energies. You're building this unnatural thing yeah. that breaks up natural flows in the environment. Yeah. Of course, we raise the walls not only against human and imagined uh, threats, we also raise them against Mother Nature. In Japan, they've built uh, these uh, seawalls because as an island nation and given its past history with threats from the sea, mm-hmm. you want to be able to mitigate that to some degree. Yeah, nearly half of the 22,000-mile coast in Japan actually has concrete seawalls, uh, which would make sense, right, because, I mean, that there's a lot of earthquake activity in that area. And you would want to have some sort of structure try to protect you from really high waves. Mm-hmm. So there's something very practical about it. But some people, the opponents of it, say that it's not necessarily that effective. And, in fact, we saw that with the right. tsunami. They are fascinating constructions, though. They're well yeah. worth doing a Google image search on. Because if you've never seen one, you may imagine just a straight-up wall. But they're a lot different because stopping a flow, a massive flow of water, is different than stopping some marauders on horseback. Mm-hmm. You, it's not just about putting up a straight barrier but putting up uh, a structure that will slow and halt this approach of water. And that's what proponents say. They say, okay, well, maybe it didn't safeguard us against the nuclear reactors, right? Mm Seawater got in there. The wall wasn't actually high enough. It should have been built much higher. But it did slow down the encroachment of those waves. Sometimes, you know, it gave people a couple extra minutes to try to evacuate, which is, you know, the difference between life and death. And another example of walls that comes to mind, if you think back to our episode on the black blizzards of the oh, uh, yeah. of the Great Depression, of the Dust Bowl, uh, we mentioned the green walls that you see uh, popping up in some portions and green wall projects in China, mm-hmm. uh, in Africa. And the idea here is building a wall against desertification, building a wall that will try to prevent the desert from encroaching on fertile lands. Yeah, there's something called the yellow dragon, and each spring the dust from China's northern deserts are swept up by the wind and whipped eastward, and they blast into Beijing, and they blanket the city in a huge coat of dust, particles, and that has actually created a lot of respiratory ailments. And the dust also clogs machinery and closes down airports and destroys crops. I mean, it's a very serious problem. And really, we see walls uh, everywhere in the world around us. We see walls in our body, cell membranes, our skin even is often seen as a wall, even though when you actually examine it, we're talking about a porous layer. Things move in and out of. There's a lot of traffic. It's kind of like the, the Great Wall of China in that regard. It's not not a perfect barrier by any right. stretch. There are gaps. There are ways to negotiate your way inside. And that's More like colanders, of- I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And not only when we're looking inward, but when we're looking outward as well, there's uh, something called the Sloan Great Wall. And this is a far distant grouping of galaxies that spans over one billion light years. It's longer than any quote-unquote structure Mm -hmm. ever measured. And I put structure in quotes because it's kind of hard to argue that this is actually a structure. These are clusters of galaxies. Right. So it's more, it's no more a structure really than a constellation in the sky. It's a structure. But we're so fascinated with walls when we define our limits uh, on things through the symbol and the language of walls. So as we stare out at these distant clusters of galaxies, we can't help but think of them in terms of walls. Well, and I guess we could say these are sort of cosmic webs, yes. right? And they do create borders between things. Yeah, there's void beyond them. Yeah, They're known as galactic filament. Uh, so that's not like filaments in a giant light bulb the size of the moon or anything. They're actually known to span these vast distances 
and they're lattice-like structures. And the cool thing about these filaments is that they are integral to the evolution of galaxy clusters and the way that they form. So there you have it, walls. I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Game of Thrones real quick. Are you familiar with this book series uh, and HBO TV series? I have heard you speak of it, yeah. and I know of it. I have not seen it, though. Uh, well, it's very entertaining, and part of the plot revolves around a northern wall that is built against barbarians and demons, mm-hmm. though in this case built out of ice. And the series explores some of the ideas of, at least the, the military ideas that we discuss with the Great Wall of China, like how do you maintain it? How does a political climate affect the maintenance and the staffing of the wall? And then is it ultimately uh, an effective barrier against these uh, outside forces? I would say no. Well, I'm no, just going to guess. Well, it would make a good story. How would you write seven <laughs> books about it, um, seven plus books about it? If, That's uh, how you would do it. Well, hey, if, uh, if you have something you would like to share about walls, your own experience with walls, a wall that you found particularly mind-blowing, a concept of a wall and reality or fiction that uh, you have some thoughts on, let us know about it. You can always find us on Facebook, where we are stuff to blow your mind. And you can find us on Twitter, where our handle is Blow the Mind. And please do drop us a line. You can do that at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 